Hi, this is John, and today on Theocast, Justin and I have a conversation about the relationship between men and women, not only in the church, but also in the home, and how the history of our understanding of culture and even modern-day culture has influenced our understanding of Scripture. And in doing so, we believe has caused a lot of pain, legitimate pain and frustration. And we want to offer some help in understanding the law and the gospel and understanding the role of Christ in his church and the kingdom and how it can bring not only relief to a lot of the tension that is here, but we think unity and harmony. Uh, this is just part one. We aren't doing a simple reformanda here because we needed to spend extra time on these episodes. So those of you who support us on Separate Reformanda, thank you for being patient with us and we hope you enjoy. We are excited to announce we have a brand new podcast available called the Kingsmen Podcast. It's where we are reclaiming biblical manhood by training and equipping men for the work of the kingdom. You can find it anywhere you download a podcast. You can also watch it on YouTube. We have new episodes that come out every Monday. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging worry pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life, as spicy as they may be, from a Reformed confessional and pastoral perspective. Your hosts today are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am John Moffat and the pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And Justin, I'm just going to throw this on you. I had the opportunity to talk to Ken Jones on the phone, and he was so thankful to be on our podcast. And I twisted his arm. I think we might be able to get him on there again. And uh, anyways, I had many of you, you guys reach out and we're thankful to have Ken on and I've had thankful as well. You know, the irony of all these things too, with that, I agree with everything you said about <laughs> Ken. I'm super thankful for him. We plan to do the first two episodes, the Christ-centered preaching and yeah. then the revivalism stuff. The, probably the feedback that I have gotten or more, I've gotten more feedback on the third episode that we hadn't even planned to do that. We only talked about for about 90 seconds <laughs> before we hit record Christian, there will be sin. Right. I can't even tell you how many personal messages wow. like I've received on my cell phone from people who listen to Theocast yeah. and are just like, bro, that episode was a banger and it was balm for my soul. So mm. yeah, we just chalk that up to the Lord's providence. Thankful for Ken Jones and his friendship. That's right. And, uh, Glad Amen. people were encouraged by it. Yeah, same. We're, and we've got yeah. some plans for some some more. But Justin and I, for the sake of time of our day and for the sake of the subject, we don't want to belabor today's episode. And uh, we, normally we come up with a title beforehand. I have no idea what we're going to title uh, this. We'll do with it later. But we're going to be dealing with, you know, biblical role of men and women in marriage and really and the in understanding. The church a little bit, but right. Yeah. Well, and really, I'll set it up this way and then I hand it over to you, Justin. You know, the tagline we have been using lately is clarifying the gospel and reclaiming the purpose of the kingdom. And this conversation is a little bit different than what we normally do, but I feel like it falls in that realm of here's the kingdom of God and the structure by which God has given to the church for our rest and comfort. Sure. And I think there's been some, um, some clarity that's been lost in mm -hmm. culture that has come in. So Justin, why don't you give us yeah. a little bit of a setup of where, why we're doing this and where we're yeah. going. Sure, man. So I'll start with this. You know, John, you've started a couple of other podcasts under the Theocast banner, mm -hmm. um, one entitled The Kingsman Podcast, which is a podcast for men, and then another one called Outside Eden, where you and your wife, Judith, are having conversations about marriage and parenting and things like that. So right. given that there is a, a, a large listenership to Theocast and 
uh, people are interested in the content that's released and are interested in these new podcasts that you have started to do. We've gotten a number of questions from our listeners, understandably, on, hey, how do you, John, or how do you guys, John and Justin, as sort of the faces of Theocast, Mm -hmm. understand men and women and in the church, in the home, because this is a often debated issue, right? right? And and so this is not our normal fair. This is not something we talk about much. We're very doggedly committed to the law and the gospel, union with Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And we aim to stay in our lane, you know, when it comes to the stuff we record on the regular show. <laughs> right. Just like we try to stay in our lane pastorally, right? And right. That's another podcast for another day. Right. But this seems good to talk about to us, seems necessary to talk about given the questions that we've received. And we want to begin this conversation by acknowledging that not only is there a lot of trepidation for us as Mm -hmm. pastors and as men, as husbands, as dads, to talk about these things, because this is such a freighted conversation, we know from personal experience and through relationships with a number of others, that this is a topic that is, uh, it's a sensitive issue for many. And there are a lot of people who have been hurt significantly by abuses of this topic of men and women and uh, male authority and and things of that nature. And we know that, and we are very sympathetic toward our sisters who have suffered from it. And we, we hope that we're able to, to set a tone and have this conversation in a way that would be helpful to everyone, but in particular would be encouraging to our sisters in the Lord who are co-heirs with us in Christ. Yeah. And I'd, yeah, I'd John, were you to interject? To yeah, Please. just for a second where, you know, the same tone that Justin and I have taken with dealing with pietism and how theology has been done wrong in the past with, you know, things like pietism and how that Revivalism, has created, yeah. right. It has created a confusion in the law gospel distinction. And I would say confusion in what's our union in Christ is. Yeah. We want to try the same situation and acknowledge that in the past, this has been done wrong. And Hugely. I think uh, an improper view of scripture and a confusion of law gospel has caused the union in Christ between two husband and wife, a confusion. And I think that's the way in which sure. we want to approach that and acknowledge, we're going to acknowledge the past, but not spend all of our time there. Right. We don't claim to have all the answers here. We don't no. have, claim to have the corner on the market. This is a secondary issue too. Like we need to make that plain that mm-hmm. In terms of a primary issue of theology, you need to believe this to be a Christian. This is a secondary matter where it is going to be important that you agree on this subject matter high level in order to be in the same church. You might disagree Mm -hmm. on some of the particular implementation, and that's okay. And I think some of that might become part of our conversation here in a little while. I guess we should say, John, at the outset, or maybe we'll do this in the intro, but we're going to just have one longer conversation today given the the nature of the topic and right. we're going to cut that into two parts and there's not going to be the typical SR stuff. There's a lot that John and I want to get to. Right. We're going to start in this first portion of the conversation uh, as we've already prayed individually for mercy and for the Lord's wisdom. Um, mm-hmm. We, we trust that you as the listener are praying for the same things for us as we're, we're having this conversation and we know that you care about the cause of Christ and we know that um, you, you care about John, you care about me and, and we've been encouraged by you guys at so many turns. And so may the Lord be good to us all, even right. as we have this conversation. Mm-hmm. So let's start by kind of chalking the field, as I like to say. Let's talk mm-hmm. about some things that need to be talked about in the interest of clarity. Right. In no particular order here, mm-hmm. I say that. But 
I'll just go ahead and start with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, yes. That maybe is most important, right? So yeah, and can we I, want, I, can yeah, I please. Interject, when you do this, so one of the discussions that's been very helpful for you, Justin may have mentioned this, but we've had multiple hours on the phone talking oh, yeah. and FaceTiming, trying to make sure that what we're doing here is meaningful and helpful. And one yeah. of the, the things that keeps coming up between Justin and I is that there tends to be in theological debates as sensitive as this one, an overreaction at times where we swing one sure. way too far. And what you're about to mention is something I think is really important because um, the, my view is not a response to this view. I understand what they're saying, but both of our views is not a reaction to that. And I have to, we have to be careful theologically that we don't create theological positions based upon reaction. So I want people to understand that as Justin is explaining this, we aren't yeah. reacting to that, but we are pointing that out how it's wrong. Yeah. In the interest of uh, not being a professional podcaster here, I'm going to make one additional comment. Sorry for the <laughs> meandering setup here. Hey, it's friends. a combo, I, I trust, right? It's not a lecture. I trust, it's a combo. <laughs> I trust you guys can understand how we may feel about this. Uh, to John's point, we have had hours of conversation over the last four, four days. We talked for a long time this morning and I, I don't know if either one of us have ever felt quite like we have felt in recent days, looking forward to a recording, right? Not looking forward to as in like, we're eager to do this, but looking forward to it and thinking about the significance of it, the weight of it, the That's difficulty the presented, ever done. uh, even John and I having to really go in with one another and, and ask questions and clarify and sharpen and push mm -hmm. back. And we've done a lot of that over, right. over recent days. And, uh, yeah, so this, this is no small matter and right. may the Lord be good to us. All right, right. So let's begin with the doctrine of the Trinity. So in the last several decades, there has been a tendency to use a, a manipulation of the doctrine of the Trinity in order to argue for any number of gender and societal roles. And in particular, what's in view here is a doctrine often to, oftentimes referred to as the eternal functional subordination of the son, EFS, or the uh, eternal submission or eternal subordination of the son, ESS, mm -hmm. uh, or ERAS, eternal roles of authority and submission. They're, they so ESS, EFS, ERAS are all headers for this kind of theology where what people do is they see or read into a doctrine of the Trinity, an inherent hierarchical structure between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in terms of the, the Trinity, as the Trinity exists imminently, there is a hierarchy there. And that is a problem when we think about Nicene Orthodoxy, right. right? In terms of Trinitarian Orthodoxy from the patristic era, how even the roles and, and the distinctions that exist between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are referred to historically as eternal relations of origin so that we understand how the Father is not the Son, how the Father is not the Spirit, how the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son, right? We would say that the Son is the only begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is spirated by the Father and the Son, right? So that stuff matters in terms of eternal relation of origin. That said, all the persons of the Godhead are equally God, and there is one will. There is perfect unity in the Godhead. There are not multiple wills in the Trinity. That's right. It is true that when God the Son took on flesh, he had not only the divine will, because there's only one, but he also had a human will, which is what you hear him speaking in as a human being about doing the will of his Father. 
or about not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. That's him speaking as a human with a human will, also possessing the one divine will, right? So that's referred to that whole dynamic of the Trinity working is often referred to as the economic Trinity, right? And what we don't want to do is take economic categories and hoist them over onto the Trinity in its imminent sense. Right. And that's what these folks have done. Here's, let me just boil this down and stop nerding out theologically. What many have done is argued that because of the ontological hierarchical structure of the Trinity, right. we then would overlay that onto men and women. And we would see this ontological hierarchical structure that we would learn from the Trinity. We then overlay that. And that's how we understand male and female relations wholesale. Right. And we would say, It is always bad to manipulate the doctrine of the Trinity in order to argue for any kind of social or political anything. That's right. Which is very common in our day. And I think you're seeing it happen a lot right now amongst people who are very concerned about the trajectory of the culture. And we've talked about this in other ways related to theonomy and Christian nationalism. And there's more to come on some of those topics as well. Hopefully that was somewhat clear. We affirm Nicene Orthodoxy. We don't use the doctrine of the Trinity to argue for gender roles. Stop that. It's bad. Yeah, right. And I would say, and that was great. And if you want a longer treatise on this, um, Matthew Barrett's book, yes, Simple Trinity, Simply Trinity, we'll put it Very in our good. notes. You definitely want to uh, read that. And and what sometimes it's happening is that because of um, this particular view has come out, then we we sweep all understanding of sure. there being roles in marriage with it, saying, well, that that wrong view of the Trinity, so therefore this view of marriage right. is wrong. And that's right. where we're going to say, okay, we can't go that far, right? Because sure. we've, we've swung too far now. Sure. All right. So a couple of other things by way of this part one, chalking the field. So we've talked about Nicene Orthodoxy, doctrine of the Trinity. That's important. Next, this is older, so I'll go chronological order here. There are two opposite errors that have been made culturally over the millennia. Mm -hmm. One is much older. I think we can all acknowledge this, that societies historically were, the majority of them were patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And what this has meant is that whether you're talking about Greco-Roman culture, whether you're talking about Aristotelian thought on the home and society, or whether you're talking about a Victorian perspective on men and women through history, there has been a tendency culturally to view things in terms of male-female relations in ways that don't square with Scripture and that are unhelpful. Like So that kind of cultural baggage is imported into the Bible, or those cultural lenses are on our eyes as we go to the text. And so that's one error that's been made historically and culturally. Another error is newer. It's more contemporary. And this is where we erode any distinction that exists between men and women And we just effectively flatten the sexes. We flatten the genders. And there's really nothing that we can say that's distinct about a man or about a woman. And we would say that both of those errors are just that. They're unhelpful and they're problematic. We don't want to fall off either side of the horse. Mm -mm. We don't want to be those who are ruled by Greco-Roman, Aristotelian, Victorian thought. But we also don't want to be those who erase and erode any distinction that can be made between men and women. That's right. No, I think that's really helpful. And 
you know, Justin and I have had a lot of conversations on how do we say this in a, in a helpful, understanding way, you know, being open to reason and meek and humble and, and, and about it. Because, sure. um, you know, there there is a side where Justin and I have drawn a line in the sand saying we're not going to allow the culture, nor are we going to allow theologically crazies to come in and change the purpose and the meaning of, of, of anything. Um, you know, I, I know a lot we get shot at for being Calvinistic. We also be shot at for being covenantal. And both of those have sides where people have fallen off on either side of the road sure. and it's caused damage. Sure. And, you know, the way I look at it is that just because someone has misused something doesn't mean that the, the, the essence of itself is wrong. Sure. Um, and that's where we're trying to say, listen, the Bible has been clear particularly in certain areas, and we can't allow outside influences to then skew our view of what Scripture has to say. For instance, I'll put it this way, Justin. The intentions of God's view of the church are amazing and wonderful, but churches have abused people profoundly. Of course. The conclusion cannot be the church is wrong. Right? Right. That's that's Or just because because ecclesiology can go badly that ecclesiology is bad. Like that, I agree, for sure. Right. You're right. So that's where sometimes I feel like in my own life, I have overcorrected because of uh-huh. PTSD. It's a good statement. Right. It's and statement. I don't want to continue to do that where I'm like, this is wrong and this is wrong. Yeah. And I can't allow that to p- push me one way yeah. or the other. I've, I've got to let scripture really guide me here. We're all reactionary creatures. It's a good statement from you. I I agree. As I look over my life, let's say even just the last 15 years, I'm just going to use a relatively recent span of time. Mm-hmm. Over the last 15 years, I've done the same thing where there have been times with, in spite of all of my effort to not do so, mm-hmm. I absolutely in reacting against something that was off center have, have gone a tick too far at points myself and have had to correct that right. over the time, over the course of time and over the years. And, and so that's something that I think we all need to be sensitive to in this issue is that because mm-hmm. it is so visceral yeah. and because a lot of us to use your language, I mean, a lot of us do have PTSD and a lot of scar tissue from abuses. Yeah. We don't want that legitimate, to be the legitimate painful, that we need to grieve horrible, and lament. Yeah. yeah. We don't want that to be the driver in no. any of our theological formation. I agree. And Last, I also don't I also don't want to sweep it under the carpet and say they're no. not legitimate because of they course. are. They're legitimate they pains are. that sometimes are really hard to get over. And I yes. understand that. Yes. Fully understand that. hundred percent. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. So the last piece of this section one is... I'm going to use an illustration from history again. To de- I'm going to at least speak for myself, and I think, John, you agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so J. Gresham Machen, many are familiar with him 100 years ago or so, and he is a confessional Protestant mm-hmm. who is one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, et cetera, et cetera. But he is living in the time where there is this controversy between liberals and conservatives or fundamentalists and modernists as it was framed at the time. And he was known to say that when forced, like, hey, Jay Gresham Machen, are you a fundamentalist or are you a modernist? He would say effectively, uh, well, I'm not crazy about that, that dichotomy. Like you're giving me those two choices. I'm, I'm kind of neither one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're going to force me to say one or the other, I guess I'm a fundamentalist, but I'm really not either one of the two as you define them mm-hmm. because he was a confessional Protestant. So That's I'm right. not a fundamentalist. I'm not a modernist. I'm actually something else which is a a confessional Protestant. So that's how Machen felt in his day in the midst of a controversy in his time. That's right, yeah. Now, granted, that was a little bit more of a a primary issue of of theology, but still, Still, I think his response is helpful because I I personally feel the same way when it comes to this current moment because most people in the conservative-ish evangelical world know of two camps when it comes to the male-female stuff. One is you're a complementarian. The other is you're an egalitarian. Mm-hmm. And if people ask me, Justin, are you a complementarian or, or are you an egalitarian? My answer is, well, I'm kind of neither one based on how you define them. I'm actually something else. It's similar to when people ask me, Justin, are you an evangelical? Yeah, well, based like, on well, how they're defined, being defined now. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You know, it's like Does Justin, it you, how they were in their originations. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, and I would argue that the complementarianism as defined by CBMW and Piper and Grudem, I don't agree with it, but, but yeah. that's, that's kind of the more modern representation of all this. So yeah. all of this to say, like when somebody asks me, are, are you an evangelical? And it's like, well, if you're asking me if I'm an evangelical or a Roman Catholic, well, I'm not yeah. a Roman Catholic, or exactly. are you an evangelical? Or are you a liberal? Well, I'm not a liberal, right? Uh, but I'm really not an evangelical either. I'm a confessional Protestant, right? And that's, yeah. so that's kind of how I feel there. That's how I feel here. I'm not a complementarian as you define it. I'm not an egalitarian as you define it. I'm neither one. Yeah. I'm, I'm arguing for something that's different, and I trust that's going to come through even in what we record today. And I hope that's helpful for some people who have these categories. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to... I. I'm not going to erode all the distinctions that exist between men and women. I think God has been intentional in his design that he's made us male and female on purpose. Mm-hmm. There are things that are distinct between men and women, and God has called us to unique things that are of equal value in yeah. terms of, and, it, and that matters. Yeah. 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 I think I want to respond to something you said offline, so I won't let you say it, but I think a great example of understanding roles. I, I, you should give the illustration of protection and I'll respond to that. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was maybe going to say this later, but let this is a good illustration of, uh, of sort what, of the reductionistic yeah, I guess this is thinking. me saying not throwing the, bo- the, the, the baby out with the bathwater. This is kind of, I thought would be an illustration for that. But. Yeah, sure. So this is a good illustration. Um, and this is not unique to me. I've read this from, from a number of folks and, uh, you know, I mean, not to, not to create controversy here, but I mean, this is something that even, I think an example that Amy Bird even gives in her book, uh, right. Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, right? And I'm not trying to trigger anybody by bringing, bringing her up in any regard. Right. Um, but this is a good example. So oftentimes in the reductionistic complementarian camp, one thing that is argued for, there's this siloing of men and women and these siloings of callings in a way that's unhelpful. Mm-hmm. So for example, in that world, it's often said that men are called to protect to which we, I would say, and then you can respond, John, mm-hmm. I would say that the instinct to protect and even a calling to protect is not uniquely male in that females are going to protect things too. What, what mom on the planet who's in her right mind, right? What mom on the planet is not going to have an instinct and an obligation to protect her children? Mm-hmm. That's written into nature. You know, women are going to protect their children. Now, having said that, there is a call to men to protect their families. And men, we can all agree, have an increased capacity to protect 
in a fallen world where violence is sometimes the order of the day, right? So men have an increased capacity to protect. It doesn't mean that women don't protect. They do. So we don't want to remove that from our our sisters. They should protect. But then there is a sense in which the man protects as well. And because of his increased capacity to do so in that instance, he would then be the first one to literally lay his life down for the sake of his wife and kids. Mm -hmm. That's a good illustration of how we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to use your language. And we don't want to completely silo, silo this as though only men protect and women don't protect. Women do protect, but right. there is a there is a distinction in the capacity that the man has been given physically to protect his home, and so he would appropriately do so should that be needed. Right, right, and that I know a lot of people cringe because we want to create uh, equal capacity. And listen, sure. I will be the first to admit I cannot sustain another human life with my body but women yeah. can. And then that's a capacity that just is not given to me. I don't have the capacity right. to do that. And so th- I think there's a, there's a, a safe way to look at it and say, by nature, there are distinctions sure. and God has designed them to work symbiotically together where it's a beautiful yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. And right. we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't downplay either one of those because they're no. for God's glory and honor and grace. But yet there isn't one that's more significant or sufficient right. than the right. other. There's not a, there's not a superiority here. Cause that's, right. that's a lot of times the issue. And I, I've said this to you a lot over recent days, and you and I agree on this, that there is an inherent superiority about being male and an apparent and an, and a, an inherent inferiority about being female in the minds of some. And we want right. to blow that up right. because that is unhelpful. We Men are not women and women are not men. God has a beautiful complementary design in that. And like you just said, man, our marriages in particular, you and I both understand that that our relationships with our wives are symbiotic relationships. Yeah. There is a mutualism in them mm-hmm. where we are we are coming together and we defer to one another depending on what the situation may be. And yeah. we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We'll save that maybe for later because let's yeah. let's talk a little bit more, maybe some high-level theology here mm-hmm. uh, on some of these matters. Do you want to take us down that road a little bit? What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about yeah, Genesis think- 2, Ephesians 5? Where do we want to go? Yeah, I think before we ever get into the structure of the home, uh, the structure of the homes, at times we we bifurcate it, right? We separate it from the global understanding of our relationship and union with Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's like we have our relationship with the union with Christ and the church, and then we have our relationships at home. And Christ mm-hmm. never separates them in that way. As a matter of fact, um, you know, there's two, there's two unequal opposite positions where we create our own little kingdoms where the husband mm-hmm. is the shepherd and the king of the home. The that's prophet, wrong. priest, and king of the home. That's right? bad. That's wrong. Yep. But and then we will uh, have an overalized eschatology in that we we disconnect any type of relationship within the home because it's like well there's no male there's no female there's no given into marriage well that doesn't happen until the new heavens and the new earth right they're still sure. functioning like like Christ is the ultimate well, king but yet right. we're still called to submit to our leaders and our government sure. right so so there's still there's broken world function that's how I'd like to describe it there's broken world function that creates a reflection of God's kingdom. And I think that's important. So I would say when we're thinking about relational marriages, relationships inside of marriage, they cannot be disconnected from our relationship and the benefits that we have in union with Christ. So, right. So you have the primary mission of the, of the life. So like, why has God not stopped the world from spinning and re and they brought in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, Timothy tells us as Paul's writing to Timothy, he's like, you will suffer 
You will suffer many things. But he says it this way, you will suffer them for the sake of the elect. In other words, the world is still spinning because God is still saving. While this is happening, while the kingdom of God is spreading, spiritually speaking, then there is a form and a function, and that kingdom is advanced through God's people, which is his church, right? So the ultimate mission is seek first the kingdom of God, right? We pray for his kingdom to come. The church is the ones by which in our life and in our message, we're spreading the good news of that. I mean, he literally says that we are the ambassadors of Christ. So the mission trickles all the way down from the king to how we parent our children, the whole function of that is in a kingdom-mindedness. So what I think is interesting, and we had a conversation about this, so I think we do go into Ephesians, not five, but I think we back up, right? Mm-hmm. First three chapters of Ephesians are union in Christ, right? So he starts with our relationship with our king. You are one mm-hmm. with Christ, and here are all the benefits and the joy. And the mystery is, of Christ that's been revealed, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So your, your salvation sovereignty given to you, your sanctification yeah. sovereignty given to you, your glorification, which is to come, sovereignly and given to you. Jew and Gentile alike saved into the one body of Christ. And we're one, one body, with one him, baptism. That's one right. One with him and one with each other. So he goes from your identity to your union, right? Yeah. And then he keeps just flowing it down. It's like, yeah. Here's your relationship in heaven. Now, how does this relationship in heaven function on earth? That's Romans chapter, I mean, that's Ephesians chapter four, right? And in that whole entire section, he's he's still playing on, you know, be eager to maintain the bond of peace and unity. So it's all about the unity of the body. Unity is the emphasis. That's right. Unity of Christ in the body. So we have our union with Christ, which then reflects to our union with each other. Okay, our unity, not union, but unity with each other. Yes. So the whole emphasis of the book so far is who you are in Christ and how that functions in the body of the church. So then he gets to chapter five and he starts dealing with relationships because, Justin, those who are in our family are also part of this church, right? Right. Now, I'll say this up front. Um, The concept of there being equal sinners, but yet sinners who are responsible for the protection of the congregation is not... We all know these passages, right? Sure. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about how the Holy Spirit has gifted men who are going to be there to lead, guide, and protect the congregation. Hebrews, right? Submit to your elders for they watch over your soul. Now, I will point this out now. The role of the elder is not the same as the husband. We will not hold that position, right? Right. You you ought not, in other words, you ought not import ecclesiastical categories directly into the home. No. Unhelpful. Yeah. No. Because this is what a number of people do. I mean, just not to be provocative here, but this is what Doug Wilson and others do. Yeah. They overlay those categories where the man then becomes the the pastor of his household. Right. And unhelpful categories. You're yeah. con- you're collapsing categories that not ought not be collapsed. That's yeah. right. But there are as there is um there's structure to all about <coughs> God's kingdom. In other words, even those of us who live in God's kingdom, we are to submit to the governing powers of our state and and Sure. Countries, right? So in God's kingdom, there is structure and there's these Mm -hmm. structures all have purpose and function and structures aren't necessarily based upon whether it's the capacity of one over the other. In other words, you've got Mm -hmm. sinners who are leading sinners and that's, Mm -hmm. that's how God has designed it. Like for instance, Justin, could have God had angels lead the church and not sinners at all? He could have, but he didn't, right? For whatever reason, he chose to have sinners lead sinners underneath the head shepherd. Christ. So I think when you get to something like Ephesians chapter five, and it says, 
okay, as the church submits to Christ. Now, we don't have a problem with that. Like, we love Christ, and we love who he is. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's a sympathetic high priest. He loves and cares for us. He guides us with a gentle hand. He gives us mercy <clears throat> and grace and wisdom at at no end, right? You look at all that, and you're like, wherever you want to go, Jesus, I'm going to go. Because look what, and it's not because we're doing it because of the benefits, you know, <laughs> but we're doing it because of who he is for us, right? So when it says, as the church submits to Christ, well, that to me creates a beautiful symbiotic flow of here's the purpose of the kingdom. The church submits to the king for this function. It says, so the wife submits to her husband in all things. Well, we cannot, as we said this earlier, Justin, you cannot disconnect that from chapters four and three and one and two and one, right? Yeah, if I can just jump in real quick. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You can't connect, disconnect it from what's come before it. In particular, the the verb submitting occurs in verse 21 of Ephesians 5. Right. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is an exhortation to the whole church, that this is what the church is to be. This is how the church is to function with this mutual submission out of reverence for Christ one to another. And then what Paul effectively does is he is going to illustrate that mm -hmm. with three different kinds of relationships That's that right. would occur in the context of the church. Mm -hmm. And so what we would say, there is a call for mutual submission one to another in the church and the relational illustrations, wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters, mm -hmm. do not subvert that calling, right? Because a lot of times that's how it, it kind of comes across. It's like right. Paul's just going to go silo, isolated. Here's a treatise on male headship and female submission. And that's what this is here for. Not at all how we would understand that text. The, the illustrations do not subvert the calling of mutual submission in the church, but rather help us to better understand it. That's right. right. That out of reverence for Christ and because of him, we all submit ourselves to one another in various ways. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's there. And I think effectively, last thing I'll say about the Ephesians 5 text, and then I'll flip it back over to you. Mm -hmm. um, when I, I I preached Ephesians a couple years ago, and I mean we may link to the to the sermon in the notes or whatever. But uh I think effectively. What we tend to do as evangelicals that codify everything, we go to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and the point is we read in a lot of stuff about male leadership and female submission, and then we give 25 different principles on what that means, and we extrapolate it out, and we do all this kind of stuff. That is very unhelpful, and I think completely misses the point. In reality, what Paul's doing is pointing, he's saying, husbands, consider Christ and love your wives. Wives, consider Christ and respect your husbands. To which we can all listen to that and we can say amen. Like that's a good thing that husbands would love their wives in this way as and be sacrificial and serve, right, as the head. And then that the wife would respect him in all of this out of reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this is a good thing. Yep. I mean, just yeah. backing up Ephesians 5, 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not yeah. get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing with one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father and the Lord and Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So in that same vein, comma, submitting yeah. to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah. Okay. W what does he mean by that? Right? So he keeps going. Wives. Submit to your own husbands, which I think this is important. He was clarifying women aren't submitting to all men. 
so true, all husbands. First century category, it's Greco-Roman, it's That's Aristotelian. Right. The controversial word from Paul in Ephesians is the call to mutual submission and <laughs> That's unity. Right. That's the controversy. That's right. Right. So this is very different than the culture of his day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where men, where men hierarchically were just superior to women and in authority over women wholesale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And then he continues to clarify, you know, uh, wives submit your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, Mm -hmm. so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, and then he goes on to clarify husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and give him up. So what, what you have is you have the focal point, which is Christ, right? You have, you have both sides of the marriage looking to Christ, Mm -hmm. For this. And the point of it is, is that there is unity in understanding the form and function and role. So in the in this uh in this flow, he's like, listen, you don't want to don't <laughs> don't think as the world thinks. That that's foolishness, right? Do not be foolish, but understand right. this is the form and function of the role. And so there is a if there if you have a husband and wife who are submitting to each other, because that's the first form and function and call, submit to one another, and then understanding who Christ is mm-hmm. and who Christ is for me and for you, then there is a way in which the two of us will look at each other and understand how we can work to encourage and strengthen one another in yeah. the marital role. Yeah. And no, a couple of other comments here. There is an appeal to Genesis 2. So mm-hmm. Genesis 2.24 is reference is cited in Ephesians 5.31. And I mean, Paul, this is where we get the language of how marriage is ultimately a pointer to the church's union with Christ. That's right. And how the reason marriage exists in the first place is because Christ would come and save his people. Mm-hmm. And so in looking back to the garden, just brief comment here, well, I, I want to be playing on this part that when God makes Adam, there is an, an element in which Adam sacrifices from the jump for Eve's sake in that God puts him to sleep and a ribs taken out of. Him. Yeah. That's significant. But then when they're united, I mean she is a she is a complement and a helper to him. She will reign with Adam mm-hmm. over the creation. So this again is kind of exploding the typical ways this is talked about. Right. right. So Eve is literally Adam looks at her, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone and and we will reign together and the two become one. There is this beautiful unity of husband and wife in God's original design. And Paul says that that unity is a pointer to the union that exists between Christ and his bride, the church, again, leading us to conclude that, yes, we both, husband and wife, are looking to Christ, looking toward the benefit of one another out of submission to Jesus and reverence for him. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. This is a good thing. Yeah. And this is how we're going to live together. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's sad that this is not how this is often presented. Right. And it's it's presented in this very fallen, broken, superior, inferior thing that's just bad. That yeah, that I, wasn't there. No, and yeah. I think marriages can be a beautiful, and that well, that Paul even says this that the way marriage functions is this glorious reflection yes. of the union that we have in yeah. Christ because you have yeah. you have two people becoming one in heart mind and soul right they are they're agreeing on the purpose and the outcome of their life and i think that that this is where we should understand this is that there it's it's not men are in charge and women need to submit to that right because then that would that that's like to say the elders are in charge and that you need to submit to the elders in all things no matter what the consequence or what the 
that's just not how this functions, right? Like even the elders have a, there's a limitation and there's a practice and a purpose in which they are responsible to def, to protect the gospel. They're responsible to protect right. the flock from bad theology and lead by example. It literally says, look at the outcome of their mm-hmm. life and imitate their faith. So the, there's an essence where the role of an elder is the primo example of a servant within the congregation as sure. he reflects the nature of Christ in word and in deed to these people, right? And this is why the sure. role of a deacon is so important too, because that is an, because in other words, you don't put deacons in place, whether male or female, you don't put them in place unless they're, they're meeting their, the character qualifications, right? right? Sure. Yeah. So really quickly on, on headship. So I, I, I know for me, I have a preference in how I speak about men and women. And I will often speak about, I affirm headship because there are sometimes guys will talk to me mm-hmm. and they'll look at me and they'll say, I affirm headship implying that I don't. Right. And I say, no brother, I, I do too. Yeah. But here's, I understand male headship in the home, which is a biblical term. Mm-hmm. I understand that to be in particular a call to love, to sacrifice, and to service. Mm-hmm. And the point of headship is not executive authority and unilateral decision-making. Mm-mm. That is not the point. It is responsibility for the well-being of the whole. That's right. Right? And that's a much healthier perspective on headship and what it entails. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to make that clear uh, that and, and I, I agree, your example of elders, like, again, being very plain that we don't overlay church onto the home, but even thinking about the role of an elder in a church can be helpful sometimes in terms of especially saying, well, the role of an elder actually is very narrow in terms of like the scope of what he's called to do. That's right. That's unique, mm-hmm. right? In so many th- in so many ways, an elder is is another part of the congregation, but in this particular area, Word and sacrament, law and gospel, sin and repentance. He he has a unique role to play, mm-hmm. it, right? I think that's significant. Yep. And we'll get into the ecclesiastical stuff here in a minute because you just said deacons, whether male or female, and there may have been some people who just fell out of their seats. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about some of the ecclesiastical matters more in just yeah. a minute. So I want to finish this fl- uh, flow of thought, yeah. right? So you've sure. got you got Christ walking around, and he's 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 destroying people's understandings, like even telling people that to follow him could could cause there to be a rift within the family, which is why in the sure. New Testament they say, don't don't unequally marry each other because you're going to have one who's living for the mission yeah. of Christ and the king, and then you're going to have one who's living for Satan. And this, that's not going to work, right? Even if they're a morally sound person, you got two different perspectives happening here. So right. when we have a unity of perspective, our, we have one, an agreement on the gospel, our union in Christ, then our role, I love this, right? He says, your role is to consider other people more significant than yourself. That's your role, to submit for the benefit of that individual and mm-hmm. for the advancement of the gospel. I mean, how many times mm-hmm. in Scripture does it says, let let the world see your good works and glorify the Father, right? The world will know you're my disciple by the love that you have for one another. So our affection and submission to each other is a vital use of God in the advancement of the kingdom because it's hard to proclaim a message if we can't live in an agreeable way, right? Um, Justin, I don't know if you've experienced this, but homes where I've had de- dealing with marital issues, right on the hills of that are parental issues. In other words, there's issues with their parenting. Because if you don't have two people in harmony 
in how they understand how the home should function, it, it immediately trickles down into their children and they feel that, right? And so this is why Paul is like, he says in Ephesians chapter four, be eager to maintain the bond of peace. And that peace is understanding everyone's role and everyone's function within the congregation. And then he takes that same concept and then trickles it down into the home because our homes are also a part of the kingdom. We, we can't disconnect the home from the mission of the kingdom, right? So it is our responsibility to love and submit and care for one each other at home. 